world, welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a constant partner to the new BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the East Side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so make sure you turn on those notifications. So all February long, we are taking the time to honor Black history with Detroit roots. This episode, we are diving deep into the sound that is Motown, better known as Motown sound, heard all over the world. Here to help us remember is Alan Rawls, CEO of the Motown Museum, and Jawan M. Jackson, Tony and Grammy Award nominee and star of the Broadway smash, and Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, playing the role of Melvin Franklin. Alan and Jawan, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Uh, thanks for having us, and me too as well. Mm. Thank you. And, uh, I'm going to feel bad because I can't, re I can't replicate that wonderful deep bass voice. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have a slight correction. Uh, I was interim CEO for three years. I'm still on the board of trustees, uh, but my primary responsibility these days is for the preservation of Hitsville USA and the expansion. Uh, I'm an architect by, by uh, profession, so uh, and I worked many years in Detroit uh, economic development. So that's uh, the contribution I'm making these days as well as kind of the Motown's in-house uh, historian since I was lucky enough to be uh, growing up as a teenager when Motown was uh, getting started back in the 60s. All right. Well, you know, um, your work for economic development in Detroit, that's a whole nother story. So we may need to get you back here to talk about economic development in our city. Um, I run a community development corporation, which Orlando used to work at until about a year ago, he changed his mind and moved on to better things. Um, so <laughs> we are very immersed in economic development. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's super cool. And I'm, I'm really excited to have you both on to talk about all things Motown. Uh, there's so much history that we're gonna dive into, but first of all, happy Black History Month, everybody. And you know, there's a lot you know, going on in the world. But I want to ask you both, um, you know, what does this month mean to you? Are you doing anything special, reading anything, watching anything? How are you recognizing and reserving uh, Black History Month this year? Oh, well, I guess for me, I've been um, really just highlighting my Black-owned business owner friends. Um, making sure they get a spotlight and a platform. And I've been doing that, you know, all year, but I'm kicking it up even more this month <laughs> for, for my people. Um, and, you know, just protecting my energy when it comes to all this stuff that's happening on in the world with impeachments and, and, and stuff going on, insurrections and all this stuff. I'm just, you know, trying to make sure that I'm reminding people about our black people and our black folks who created all these things that we use and that we, you know, know and love today that aren't getting their credit. And uh, more specifically, um, as it pertains to my field, highlighting, you know, the black artists that that came before me, you know, and showing the the difference and the major like miles and miles of difference between. Uh, black artists who have have won awards versus the white white counterparts and 
you know, trying to change the narrative in um, theater in itself as it pertains to, you know, the black, black entertainers and colored entertainers. I love it. Alan, how about you? Well, uh, for me, uh, I kind of celebrate black history all year long, uh, although uh, February is always special. Uh, and I guess the start of that, two things. Number one, my family roots. Uh, uh, my uh, grandfather was part of a group of uh, entrepreneurs who started Detroit Memorial Park Cemetery in Warren, Michigan, which is the uh, oldest uh, black uh, continuously operating corporation in the state of Michigan. Uh, and so uh, folks like Haley Bell, who uh, started WCHB, were part of that group. Uh, uh, Reverend, um, I'm forgetting his name, who, who was pastor of Second Baptist Church for, for quite a while. A um, little later on, uh, Dr. Charles Wright uh, from the uh, Charles Wright African American Museum was a very close member of our group. So. I'm constantly steeped in that. And uh, we, we tend to, to celebrate that, uh, 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 that legacy uh, all year long on things that we do. Um, in addition to that, um, on a personal level, what I've uh, found uh, new this year, uh, some of the specials that have come out the, that are on like Netflix and Amazon, um, gave some amazing additional insight into uh, things that were going on, especially in the entertainment field. I'm, I'm sure y'all have seen one, uh, one Night in Miami. Yeah, yeah. yeah. amazing uh, piece of art. Yeah, that was, uh, that was an amazing piece of, uh, uh, of uh, film. And uh, for some reason, uh, uh, although I was, uh, uh, I, I, I almost idolized all of those characters, Sam Cooke, for some reason, uh, uh, really struck a note with me because I guess because of his musical talent and how he was kind of the precursor of Marvin Gaye and uh, uh, some of the other Motown acts. What he did in terms of owning his own masters, promoting other groups uh, like Bobby Womack, uh, like Lou Rawls, who's my cousin, uh, those folks uh, have a real uh, uh, impact on the legacy of African-American music. And, and uh, there's a couple of other Sam Cooke uh, specials that I've seen since then that really yeah. just kind of give a sense of not just his uh, business acumen, but his, his artistry, which is su absolutely superb. Yeah, and let's put him better than a change is gonna come. Right? The, <laughs> the song of <laughs> it, it, but it's it's not just like the the meaning. It's so beautiful, and at the yeah. same time, so me meaningful that it makes you almost cry when you hear it. You know, and so when I saw mm -hmm. the origins of that song and just understood how he was really um, getting the confidence to put his message in his music. That no, so yeah, for me, I feel like you know, uh, like you said, Alan, just watching. I didn't know the story, mm -hmm. the connection between all of them at the end, and seeing how. You know, Sam lost his life right before Malcolm or and, and it just how close that was in proximity. It's, it's, it was just a, a very interesting and very beautifully um, filmed, directed play by Regina King. 
and yeah. all and everybody. And I had a, you know, Leslie Odom Jr. He's a friend of mine. And so I just watched, you know, just watching him do that role. It was just magnificent. And his execution of that song, Juwan. Mm-hmm. I literally texted him, I said, bro, this <laughs> is ridiculous. ridiculous. <laughs> Leslie is just, he yeah. can do no wrong. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> He's so good. He's so good. Talk about black history. He is black history. Like that okay. is, that man's been, working and he's just uh, um, the salt of the earth. Well, you and Alan are black history as well, but we'll get into we'll get into that a little later on in the show, but it's time for fresh off the press news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Donna, fresh off the press. Um, COVID-19 is draining Detroit's biggest source of funding, income tax. And this is um, by Louis Aguilar reporting for Bridge Detroit, um, your newspaper, Orlando. Yeah. This was a really um, not surprising, but disappointing in so many ways. First of all, um, learning that employers are not required to collect income tax for their employees, Detroit-based employers, for their employees who work at home. Number two, all these jobs were created, but when the pandemic hit, all of these people that supposedly live in Detroit, many of whom still live here, are claiming their parents' address, you know, so they can get the car insurance rates or whatever. And so they are not counting Detroit as home, or maybe they're not staying here. And when you look at the amount of investment a city places in downtown development, and then you look at how fragile that investment is when the workers don't have to claim this as home and don't have to pay into the tax base, it really just speaks to a need for tax reform. And the Michigan Municipal League and Detroit are really working together on what that tax reform might look like. I'm excited about that. Um, Some of you may know that I've been advocating for an entertainment tax to help recoup some of the investment we've put downtown that we cannot recapture because of the Downtown Development Authority and the tax increment finance um, rules, which say that any increases in property tax must be captured downtown and spent only in the downtown area. But people like me and people like um, you, if you live in the city of Detroit, are paying taxes and paying into the funds that are used to protect those areas, whether it's our police or fire services. And so it's um, a wake up call, I think. It's tragic, it's a wake up call. And I think that finally the city is understanding and beginning to work with other communities about um, really recouping its income. But let's demand that if you live in Detroit, you say you live here, you're in an apartment here, you're living in a house here, that you claim that as your residence and you don't get away with pretending like you're not here when it's time to pay up, but then claiming this is your home when it's Detroit versus everybody. Donna, you know, this issue is so layered. I, I think that they are estimating what about a, a $170 million uh, shortfall. But I, I also want to link, you know, the NEPA reform in other areas beyond taxes that contribute to why people do not claim Detroit as home. And uh, we could talk about high automotive insurance rates. That, that's somebody's phone. We meant to tell everybody to turn their phones off. That's probably Juwan. I'll get him later. Uh, uh, but uh, high property, uh, not property, uh, automotive insurance rates, which, which is uh, a, a big factor in why people don't claim Detroit as home. But also, it speaks to the need for Detroit politicians 
at city council and in the mayoral seat to have a legislative policy agenda for Lansing. These are issues that are not going to be solved at the local level. We have to go to the state house and demand for policy that is advantageous and beneficial toward the bottom line for the city of Detroit. And you know what, this is an election year and I'm going to remind every single one of them of that this year. The other thing I just wanna point out briefly is there is not a single apartment building that has been built since in the past five years that has not been subsidized by taxpayers in the city. Absolutely. Every single new development has been subsidized. So if you're living in subsidized housing, I expect you to claim this as your resident. And if taxpayers subsidize your housing, even if you're paying $2,000 a month, I help pay for that. And I want my money back. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the other the other thing too is that you know there are folks who are fortunate like you and I to be able to work from home but at one point the city estimated more than 50,000 Detroit-based workers lost their jobs and so there's no income tax due to the stay-at-home uh, piece but also people are still out of work and I don't know what that number looks like currently but there is still a vast amount of people in the city of Detroit who don't have who doesn't, who's not working right now. And so our thoughts are with yeah, it. Our thoughts and prayers are two things, but I do want to point out that if you live and work in the city, you have to have your taxes paid. The, the employer is required to take your taxes out. It is only if you're working at home and live in the city, you pay taxes. If you are working from home and you are employed by somebody in the city and you say you don't live here, that's when you don't have taxes taken out. So there's also a disparity there that Detroiters who work from home are still having to pay Detroit income taxes. Yeah, uh, fresh off the press. Lack of black neighbors in Detroit's Island View rentals leads to Fair Housing Act lawsuit. This is Nusrat Rahman reporting for Bridge Detroit in partnership with the Detroit Free Press. So this is a relatively interesting a story because as Island View is a strategic neighborhood uh, targeted for investment and it is seeing um, its fair share of displacement and gentrification, uh, Island View for the most part, uh, and I'm now a resident of Island View, is still very much uh, a black, uh, majority black neighborhood. But uh, there is um, uh, some developments there where three tenants have brought up a lawsuit and they're all non-black two white folks and the Asians and brought up a lawsuit against uh, uh, their developers for uh, violating the Fair Housing Act. And I don't know if you guys knew this, but there is a clause in the Fair Housing Act that says one cannot deny a person the opportunity to live in a racially and culturally diverse neighborhood and or complex, right? So these are two white folks and the Asian American person uh, bringing this uh, Fair Housing uh, Act uh, lawsuit up. And so one of the uh, interesting things around how this came up, guys, is that uh, last year, uh, uh, near the summertime, the tenants decided that they were going to meet to see how they can support each other through COVID, right? And so all of the tenants meet, and there are no Black people <laughs> at this tenant meeting in Island View, on the east side, near Belle Isle, okay? on the east side of Detroit, there are no black people. And that began to ring alarms uh, in the heads of uh, the plaintiffs. So they brought up uh, this lawsuit and, you know, I think it still may be in the discovery phase, uh, but, you know, we're gonna see where this lawsuit goes. For me, it is the definition of what we 
black folk have been calling our woke white friends to do, which is, hey, get your people, number one. Uh, number two, uh, the defense uh, released a statement, <laughs> and Dada, I, I really want to hear your response to this. There's no way that we have denied uh, Black tenants, uh, you know, the right to live here. In fact, 20% of our tenants are actually, you know, African American. But beyond that, the person who does our day-to-day -day tours and operations is a Black person, and, <laughs> and I'm just like. We're not racist because we got that one black friend that you know gives us you know our credence, and so uh, this lawsuit is uh, ongoing. The burden of proof, of course, is on the tenants in this case. There is precedent uh, for white folks bringing up uh, Fair Housing uh, Act lawsuits in, in in the 1970s out in California that was settled, and I'm sure they're going to you know cite that case, but you know. Is this what it takes? Do we need white folks, our white friends, uh, bringing up these kinds of lawsuits uh, to make sure that you know we continue to live and thrive in an equitable city? I mean, we're not going to have equity if you're paying $2,500 a month to live in Island View, because your average black person is not going to do that. Okay, so let's be really clear here. Part of it is the economic issue of rents too high location undesirable for a black person. Because when we spend $2,500 a month, we're gonna live somewhere. I'm not sure what the rents are, but I'm just saying that in a lot of instances, you're building these expensive units in these places where we, we look at the world a little differently than a lot of these young white people who wanna pioneer and go places in Detroit. Say, oh, I live in the city, you know, and that's really cool. We're looking for more, a lot of instances. So I think part of it is priced out. And I think a big part of it, once again, goes to policy. Because when you have all of the units being built at a certain level, now, most of the time they're saying set aside 20% of the units that's for, what they, they did. Um, for people who make 80% or less of the AMI. The, the area median income is about $60,000. It might be higher now. So the 80% um, is $44,000. The Detroit median income is $27,000. So you have to look at the fact that 80% of the area median income outprices the average Detroiter. And then look at the units that a lot of times these developments are making available to people at that area, at that income level. A lot of times you can rent a studio apartment for $1,000 a month. Now I'm not saying that that's not reasonable, but I'm just saying that if I had to spend $1,000 a month, I would not necessarily spend it on a studio apartment if I were wanting it in, in, in Island View. You see what I'm saying? It's like all of these factors together that don't add up. And so I don't, I'm not sure if there is racist intent or the policy, the, the racism is baked into a policy decision that this is how we're gonna do housing in our community. Um, and, and you know, some of us actually fought, remember when the, um, what is it, um, Charlevoix Villages was really fighting the city's plans for uh, making that a target neighborhood and demanded that the city set aside actually affordable housing for low-income folks. And the city said, oh no, that's not, that's not feasible. They actually paid somebody for a report to come in and say that inclusionary housing was not feasible in the city of Detroit. But at the same time, once again, Detroiters are subsidizing the development of all of these units, including this one. So I think if they're gonna sue anybody, they need to add the city of Detroit, which subsidizes <laughs> the development to the list of people they're suing because our policies need to change. So yes, there, there is a 20% set aside uh, 
in, in these developments. And the, the defendant uh, is uh, Village, um, Village Association, uh, but it's all, it's all three companies. And what's funny is, you know, you, you're supposed to have that 20% set aside for affordable units. And the company, the defendants are citing that 20% uh, of the residents are, are black. So it's just, it's just a crazy coincidence. And I'm not saying that all the black residents are in affordable units, but I just, this is something I think that has, Villages Property Tenants Union is the, uh, the plaintiff um, in this case, and it's in the U.S. Eastern uh, District Court of Michigan. And so hopefully uh, this, you know, this goes on and we'll keep our eye on this, but this has, you know, implications for uh, if it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court for the entire, for the entire country, if it's not settled um, out of court. So this is something that we'll be keeping a close eye on. And I think it is time for uh, our woke white brothers and sisters to uh, challenge policy um, in this way if they want to be a part of, you know, equ equitable cities and ju racial justice. So that's funny. That wraps up our Fresh Off the Press segment. If you have pieces that you want to discuss on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Alan and Juwan, our special guests for today's episode. We are so excited to talk about all things Motown. I mean, it's we're, we're here in Detroit. Uh, Juwan, you grew up in Detroit. I mean, like just, we, we, we can't wait. But uh, Alan, we wanna ask you and uh, first mention, you know, that last week, Mary Wilson uh, passed away, one of the iconic founders of the Supremes. Um, just how, how is how is the museum, how is Hitsville remembering her legacy in the wake of her death right now? Well, the, the, the museum uh, currently uh, is closed uh, as, some, as a, a result of COVID, uh, but I believe we're going to reopen on Thursday, okay? Uh, and that's that's been in the works for a while, but we make sure uh, because we have a relationship with Henry Ford Hospital, they had kind of advise us as to when, when is a prudent time to uh, uh, open our doors again. Uh, so I believe Thursday's the day for that. Uh, what we've been doing in lieu of having an actual uh, uh, exhibit or anything is uh, we've used social media uh, uh, in cooperation with ourselves and with Motown Records uh, and other sites that are allied to us to uh, <clears throat> celebrate uh, uh, Mary's legacy. Uh, if you go to our website or if you go to our Facebook or Instagram, you'll see uh, posts that uh, talk about Mary. Uh, there's one that I like particularly uh, that had her in one of her Supremes gowns in the 60s and it simply says our world is empty without you so uh that's certainly true and uh we treasure all of our al uh, alumni and we're very sad when any of them leave us uh it was quite a surprise uh for mary to leave uh so suddenly so we're still kind of you know processing that as well because i think it's been a week now yeah yeah so, uh, like, 
like everything else, I've got a Mary story. You want me to tell it now or later? Yes, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 15 years old, okay? Uh, just uh, still in, in uh, junior high school, Supremes uh, uh, really start to get successful and they all buy houses on West Buena Vista, which is right around the corner from where I was growing up. So uh, uh, being, you know, uh, Motown groupies, <laughs> we immediately gravitated to that street and somehow we became more friendly with Mary than Diana or Flo. Not that we didn't want to, but uh, Mary just seemed to be a little bit more accessible. Uh, and um, uh, it was, it was, she was gracious enough to, to let us into her home uh, numerous times. And she, uh, it was just amazing for young kids like that to be in the presence of superstars and to see how they uh, lived uh, as uh, uh, you know, regular people. And so, so many years later, uh, here I am with, at Motown uh, uh, working there on a daily basis and Mary comes to town at uh, MGM, not MGM, Motor City Soundboard. And so uh, she's conducted an interview and I'm, I happen to be there and I, I uh, remind her of all of these things that went on uh, when I was, a, I was a teenager and she was uh, a budding superstar. And it was kind of funny for her to say, oh, you remember this person? Oh, you remember this episode? So <laughs> and some of it I can't talk about, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the journalist in me would try to pull that out of you. Like, I yeah. would I'll put it like this, Mary, Mary was very popular with uh, uh, a certain member of one of the other superstar groups. Well, so let me, you know. That's one, it, that's all, that's all you're gonna get out of me. <laughs> well, listen, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that they lived around the corner from you. And I think, you know, what an amazing part of community where there was a time where black folks got to live in proximity to their heroes. The Supremes lived on in, in Russell, in the Russell Woods neighborhood. Juwan, yeah. I want, I want to, uh, I know that you had the opportunity uh, to meet Mary Wilson. In fact, I heard you two were pretty cozy because I, I'll go ahead and out the rumor. The rumor was that she was dating Melvin Franklin. Uh -huh. uh, but you and her got cozy. Tell us that story, Juwan. <laughs> yeah, so I had the pleasure of getting to know Mary for the last eight years. Um, and when I made my Broadway debut in Motown the Musical, I met her there and we got cool and then the past three years, that's when we got closer because of my role in Ain't Too Proud. And so, you know, she, we were like, you know, because I'm also like super, super, super close to Claudette Robertson, they were like really, really cool. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, they both called me their boyfriend. And so, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember opening night specifically, specifically though, um, she came up to me, she was like, you know, Melvin and I never dated. I just wanted to let that let that be known. We never dated, but he was my best friend. And you know, it's you know, I understand how stories go, but then she says, "But you fine, so I don't mind dating you in real life too." If you, <laughs> 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 and so 
she was my girlfriend, you know. <laughs> so we were dating. That's that's the rumor that so we were dating. But no, she's just a joy. Anytime I've ever been around Mary at any event, whether it be in New York, in LA, and Detroit, she's always been kind. She's always kept it real. And she's not ever held her tongue, not one moment I've ever been around her. And so that's what I love about all of those Motown like people. They will not hold their tongue about anything that they got to say. And I think that's a testament because Barry Gordy is the exact same way. As old as he is, he'll just say things and be like, Barry, you can't say that. He's like, yes, I can. And I will. Did. <laughs> so, but my Mary Wilson, I'm going to miss her dearly. She is, she is definitely um, uh, play had a place in my heart. So, so you know, when um, speaking of Broadway, I remember when Dreamgirls came out. <laughs> And um, that was um, believed at the time to fictionalize the Supremes or the relationship between the Supremes. To what extent is that a true depiction? And to what extent was that sort of, you know, um, unfair to the treatment of all of the members of the group? And the name of Mary's memoir was Dream Girls, uh, Life of a Supreme or something like that, right? Any yeah. info on that, guys? I, okay, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the app Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it's just yeah. basically, you know. So um, Shirley Ralph, uh, we got her to join Clubhouse, and I'm really, really close friends with her son Etienne. And so we had like this Dream Girls. She had, um, it, I think it was like our 35th anniversary of making her Broadway debut on Dream Girls or something like that. So we had this big old celebration about it and about for her. And she actually, you know, put it to rest. She was like, it was not about <laughs> the Supremes. Um, but mm -hmm. You know, it could be, you know, loosely based. It's kind of like how the 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 five heartbeats and the temptations, you would think right. it's you know, the same thing almost like, but she, you know, she put it to rest, but she did, you know, she was telling the story about like the Diana Ross and her situation and how, you know, that was a whole thing for a minute. And then, but she was like, it was not about the Supreme. She was like, people wanted it to, to seem like it was, but it was not. So she well, let it to rest. To rest. Uh, Juwan, yeah, I think I think the I think the best the best for, uh, portrayal of that is uh, in Motown the musical. I mean, you see some elements of it. You know, light in life, you know, people fall in and out of, of friendships and they have conflicts. But the uh, like Barry says at the end, comp the love overcomes the competition. Yeah. So um, I think that uh, the guys who created Dreamgirls may have taken some artistic liberties and kind of used the Supremes as the basis and, and Barry as the basis of it, but uh, then took it and made it, uh, uh, you know, a, a fictionalized account. Yeah. Alan, tell us about, you know, the living, the history that's living and breathing that is the Motown Museum, the original Hitsville headquarters, and we know and have read about uh, the museum expanding. How, how is everything going? Have you guys raised all of the money? Like what's next for the museum? Well, uh, we have not raised all the money yet, but we're well on our way to doing so. Uh, I don't want to quote a figure. I'll let our CEO, Robin Terry, uh, put that out there in, a, in, in press releases uh, as we uh, approach our goal. But we've uh, made a significant amount of progress. Uh, we recently completed uh, an expansion 
a smaller expansion to the museum, which is called Hitsville Next. Uh, it's our educational and entrepreneur center. And if any of you all have been to Motown, you'll recall there's Hitsville USA and the museum, which are the two buildings to the furthest to the west. Then just a little bit farther east or to the left, if you're looking <clears throat> at the front door, there's three other houses that we talk about a lot. Uh, and so those have been the administrative offices for the museum for quite a long time. And we uh, uh, renovated those completely and built an addition. And that's now, as I said, our educational and entrepreneur center. And what it's intended to do is give kids a place and young adults too, uh, a place to explore their talents and, and nurture and grow it uh, under mentorship of Motown folks and other people that we bring in as well. So we have uh, a number of programs throughout the year like Motown Mike, which is our spoken word uh, program where we have uh, 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 poets and rappers and uh, orators uh, compete. Uh, we have a, a singing competition as well. We have, a, we have a summer camps from elementary through high school. So we'll use that space to uh, uh, continue to, to provide that kind of outreach to help nurture our next generation of, uh, of Detroit and Motown talent, uh, as well as honoring some of the uh, individuals who have been entrepreneurs in the city of Detroit and have helped uh, guide the way. Obviously, Mr. Gordon would be one of them. Uh, another one that uh, many of you may be aware of is Dr. Bill Picard. Uh, he is uh, an industrialist. Uh, he's owned uh, many uh, 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 restaurant franchises, uh, such as McDonald's. Uh, he's the owner of Real Times Media that owns the Michigan Chronicle and several other African-American newspapers. So it's folks like that that not only have contributed financially to Motown, but have contributed their time and their expertise to help nurture the uh, next generation of talent. So I can't wait for us to be able to open that up. Uh, let's get out of, let's get COVID in the rearview mirror. Yes, so COVID can, be gone. <laughs> so that we can uh, continue to uh, enjoy life fully again. And uh, I'd love to see, uh, you all come down and maybe do a show from there. Oh, we would really love that. That would love be that. Cool. Yeah, that would be absolutely wonderful. Um, so we look forward to that. Um, I have a question though. I was um, in, in the early 2000s, uh, my late friend Tanya Heidelberg Yap was planning um, for a new Motown museum that was going to be on Woodward near. Um, was it I-75? I-75, yes. And where um, LCA is now located. Yes. Um, can you tell me about what happened there and what the difference is between this expansion and um, the expansion that Tanya was overseeing? Sure. So that was known as Motown Center. Uh, mm -hmm. That was a development for the uh, building that uh, was Motown's office building, also known as the Donovan Building or Motown's, uh, it was Motown's headquarters after we outgrew all the properties on the boulevard, okay? Uh, so uh, Mr. Gordy and uh, a team of developers 
um, uh, encouraged by uh, Mayor Archer, I believe at the time, uh, uh, convinced, uh, convinced them to uh, invest some money to try to develop that property as uh, kind of a mixed use development, which would have been office, hotel, some retail, and a portion of it would have been uh, a, a Motown experience that would have been a supplement to the Motown Museum. It was not gonna be another Motown Museum or a replica of what we have there on the boulevard. Mm -hmm. uh, we believe our roots are uh, at 2648 West Grand Boulevard in the heart of the community. And that's where we intend to afford to always stay. Uh, but that's not to say we can't uh, find places to celebrate it elsewhere in the city. And so that's what that project was about. And like anything else, you know, uh, developers have big ideas and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. So money and was really tight in those days. Raise money. It's yeah. a little looser right now from foundations, isn't it? I'm sorry. I, I'm, the money I, seems like it's a little looser uh, from foundations and corporations now than it was in the early 2000s. That was a real mm -hmm. difficult yeah. time to raise well, funds. Yeah, and so that project was meant to be a purely economic uh, for-profit deal. Mm. Uh, there wasn't really a there wasn't really any uh, uh, foundation money in there, uh, and I think just because the economics weren't there, a development really hadn't come far enough up Woodward Avenue. You got to remember this was even before uh, um, what was Carmanos? What was the name of Carmanos's company? Copywear. Copywear. hadn't even been built yet. Right. Yeah. In fact, I don't even, I can't recall if both of the stadiums had been completed yet. I think uh, it was just, um, it was just the America Park. America Park. Gary yeah. Porco was yeah. at the center of that. Now he's with um, Huntington Bank, right? Yeah, so, right. Um, right. We had a right. whole different group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was just, I think, uh, I think from an economic development standpoint, uh, the area just wasn't ripe for development yet. And to be honest, if it hadn't been for somebody with super deep pockets like the Illiches, that probably that that corner would still be undeveloped. Oh, some of our tax money too. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some of that, well, yeah, some of that I, is still undeveloped. with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, so before before we went on air, we uh, heard a, a bit of uh, your story, Jawan. You've played Melvin Franklin twice, but the story of how uh, you got to New York on Broadway before all of the award nominations is fascinating. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I auditioned in Detroit before I even booked Motown the mu uh, musical. And what's interesting about that is I, I found the ad for it in the newspaper. <laughs> it was in the classified section and um, you know, two auditions in, I went, my first audition was at Marvin Winans Academy. And then the second one I sent in the tape. And I think actually Orlando, you may have helped me at some point get then do that tape. Cause we were in college. I had just graduated college and- yeah. um, I'm trying to remember. Then, yeah, it was just so, it was so much we were doing that around that time. And, and then my third audition brought me to the Motown Museum and I had never been and that was the very first time I had stepped foot in the Motown Museum. And that's when I auditioned for this show. And that's what ended up ultimately getting me booked to 
where I am and who I am today. And it was honestly because of people like Alan and Terry and everybody from the Motown Museum, they rooted for me and championed me and they they held me up so I was like a, a fish out of water because <laughs> I was straight out of from Detroit, moved to New York, didn't know anything about the city, but they would they would come and they I remember when they would fly in, they always made sure they saw me, loved on me, made sure they always encouraged me and allowed me to, you know, to grow and but know that they had my back. And so I'm appreciative and I'm glad I can actually say this now, Alan, after all these years, thank you so much for just your love and your support for you know um helping me get along my my journey as an actor and a singer and a performer because it was people like you and everybody at the motown in the motown company to help me be the artist i am today so thank you wow oh, you're welcome and let me tell you i gotta i have to uh uh, uh, uh tell you about this one story one of the most gratifying things i was able to do was uh, when Motown was first on Broadway, uh, we had a group of kids from CAS, Detroit, Detroit School of Performing Arts, Renaissance, and one other school come to the museum one day. They were a choral, uh, I, I guess a, a, a citywide choral group. They came and, and just toured the museum and sang in the echo chamber. Uh, and uh, Robin was there watching it and, and she said, my grandmother is telling me that these folks need, these young people need to see the musical. We need to find a way to get them to New York. So we got, we worked with Detroit Public Schools. We rented a bus. We took the kids to New York. They got a chance to see Times Square, which I'm sure hardly any of them had seen before. Uh, got uh, front row, row seats to Motown the Musical. And afterward, uh, uh, the cast came and met with them because these were performing arts students. And so they were getting a chance to, to see where they could be in the future. And Juwan was part of that. In fact, I remember him coming out and saying, hey, I heard Detroit's in the house. And the kids went wild. And so I just love to see uh, uh, performers like yourself uh, give back and give encouragement to our next generation of uh, next generation of artists. Yeah, I think that's very important, man. Like that's one of my platforms as an artist is arts, yeah. arts and education and making sure that I can give what was given back to me. And so I would do that as long as I'm breathing. <laughs> Jawan, talk about, talk about this voice. Like, you know, uh, all, in college, all the girls were fascinated with Juwan because of this voice. We did we actually did a production together uh, and you were the voice of the production. Where did this voice come from? It's come from my grandfather, but I've had it since I was 12 years old. Wow. And it's, you know, it was one of those things, you know, I feel like now it's a, a blessing, but at first for me, it was just the ugliest thing. I hated it. I hated the sound of it because before I couldn't sing, you know, I was singing the Tevin Campbells and I was singing, hitting the high notes from Sister Act and doing all of that. And now I'm like, I can't do none of that. So, so it was actually my choir director from church. I um, grew up in uh, my home church is Great New Mount Mariah Missionary Baptist Church with Kenneth James Flowers is my pastor. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it was my choir director who really just cultivated my gift and like worked with me and had me. It's like, you got all this low. Everybody singing high. I want you to sing here and stay here. Let's work on that because what that's going to make you unique and stand out. And I've been using it ever since. And I like the response from it that I got from it. I was like, okay, cool. We're going to make it work and make some shake with it. And, you know, years later, it has paid off. And I am so grateful for it. <laughs> uh, Alan, can you talk a little bit about the sound that still reverberates around the world? And, you know, what is it about that sound that resonated with so many people? I had the opportunity in late 2019 to travel all across Europe, uh, country to country. And I don't care if I was in a coffee shop, I don't care if I was in a hotel, wherever, Detroit was in the house. And it made me proud as a freighter. Talk, talk about that sound and the magic that it was. I'd love to, but I just want to say one thing first. Uh, Juan has this unique bass voice and, and he's part of a legacy of rich bass voices that go back to Paul Robeson and yeah, William yeah. Warfield and other great baritones or basses that uh, are part of the African-American spirit experience. So when you think about Melvin singing Old Man River, I think about William Warfield singing Old Man River from Porgy and Bess. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a direct link that that, that tree is growing another branch. Okay, now, uh, Motown around the world. So what, what was unique about the sound? <laughs> Where do I start? Well, first of all, uh, the voices. I mean, every voice that you can think of, of a Motown artist has a signature voice. Marvin, mm -hmm. Diana. Levi, come on! <laughs> I can stop right there. <laughs> I can stop right there. Barry Gordy said, "A voice like Levi Stubbs doesn't come along every once in a while. It only comes along once." Mm. I mean, a voice like that. Okay, Smokey, hmm. light, airy voice, unmistakable. David Ruffin, yes, Eddie Kendrick. That voice. Man. Paul Williams, the forgotten voice of the Temptations. Paul Williams had a voice that was so smooth. So distinct. That it, you know, and so evocative that it just, you know, takes my breath away. Yeah. So the, the voices, I think, were one of the things that made Motown so special. And then, of course, the music, you know. Uh, uh, the songs that that, that Holland Dozier Howland, that uh, Smokey, that Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong and 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 Barry wrote uh, were unique. I mean, they took they bridged what was you know a Chuck Berry, you know a uh, 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 Little Richard sound and brought it into a new level of polish and sophistication. I mean, those those uh, early rock and rollers were great, uh, and there and and everybody has their own place in in uh, music history. I think Motown's contribution was, among other things, giving that kind of what was 
considered to be sophistication and polish that was part of what uh, uh, African-Americans were striving for in the 60s to be a little slicker and a little bit more uh, 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 refined as we, you know, as, as we were promoting ourselves with integration. And then of course, I can't forget the Funk Brothers. I mean, I'm, I'm proud that uh, I know a number of them. Uh, um, in fact, when I talk about the teenage years, uh, I used to uh, hang out the, at this little recording studio between my own personal auditions uh, for Motown and Pistol used to moonlight there. Uh, Johnny Griffith used to moonlight there. Golden World, where they all moonlighted, was a couple of blocks from where I live. Uh, Eli Fontaine, who mm. played the sax on What's Going On and so many mm. uh, other records, he lived two doors down from me. So uh, all of the Funk Brothers and the Funk Brothers extended, you know, they created a foundation that had that unmistakable sound, that unmistakable beat, that unmistakable bounce that was, you know, something that everybody liked. It wasn't uh, 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 purely a black sound. Black, black people were bringing, were bringing it to the public and providing it that soul, that uh, 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 unique quality that made it uh, uh, desirable for everybody. Uh, but it became accessible uh, a universal music that uh, uh, everybody around the world loved. Well, you know, I, I think of Motown as Black excellence because you couldn't just show up with a good voice. You had to um, hit every note the right way. You had to dress the right way, carry yourself the right way. They were, they were polished and groomed. It seems as though there was such a high standard of what Blackness was going to be presented out of the city of Detroit, that that also kind of brings me pride. There is not a single picture of any of the uh, Motown stars where they are not just looking uh, amazing. Oh, they move with style. it. Like Detroit has style and you just saw it in that. Um, how important was that to the overall sales of the music, do you think? I think it was tremendous. Uh, first of all, it gave them uh, accessibility to national television audience like uh, uh, Ed Sullivan's show and uh, Dick Clark and that sort of thing. Uh, but it also, you know, showed, uh, showed us in a light uh, that uh, was, that uh, allowed us to become uh, uh, more uh, acceptable to uh, the country writ large. Mm -hmm. I think also too for me, just even you know that era like when working with Barry in Motown the musical he was very intricate in the process the creative process and all of it, and Barry like you said he he didn't have he didn't understand the concept of this is a musical and when you come you put it up and then whatever you did on opening night that's the show that you give every day and you don't do anything else and it's locked. <laughs> Barry said, no, no, no. So it was, I had a unique experience with Motown the Musical, unlike any other Broadway show I've ever been on, because Barry, when he come, he came, he says, why didn't you do this riff there? Why aren't you doing this? And so we was like, well, Barry, we tell we could. He was like, no, come sing, sing your face off. If it feel, we want the people to feel good. We want people leaving here feeling good and having an experience. And so 
<laughs> with Mary's permission, you can you can imagine because all because you know as performers we just want we want the ability just to be free and yeah. just go for it. And Barry would come and it was like just go give it all you got. And when we get notes and be like Barry, well, our music director he was like I talked to him. He was like let them do what they want to do, you know. So, <laughs> it was that it was that feeling, you know, where we got to have the you know the lessons behind the the Charlie Atkins and the, the, the charm schools of, you know, the Motown back in the days where they were having these, um, you know, just etiquette courses on how to be an overall artist and performer. And I think that I took on a lot of that because I was like, wow, like they were actually preparing, you know, these artists for the world to present themselves. So you, so nowadays you don't see that. You see these artists now who are just come just, just raw and there's no, just they all expose. And there's a piece of like people like feeling like, oh, I need to, you know, it makes me, it seem real, but these artists were polished and I like to see clean, like our, our colored people just clean, represented well. Look, that's a very- <laughs> you know, and thank goodness Instagram did not exist back then and Twitter okay. <laughs> all your illusions. You have to see the real person. I don't want that. I want my yeah. fantasies, okay? She's great. She could be my best friend. I don't want to know her attitudes, opinions, yeah. or mistakes, you know? And that was the thing. There was this image that gave people something to look up to that yeah. Instagram has just destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, you have, you know, some little known family history and ties to the temptations. What say you? What What is it? Tell us about that. It's the craziest thing. So, um, you know, I did not know this. My father passed away in 2012. And as you get older, you start researching things about your family history. And so one time I just looked him up, Donovan H. Gibbons. And these stories came back, a couple of stories. And I found out that he was the Temptations doctor. Wow. Now, speaking of not dropping names, let's think about this, right? I'm a little girl and the Temptations are your patients and I'm not going to meet them. I don't have anything autographed. I don't have anything. So I don't know why he kept a secret. Um, I actually worked in his office when I was in high school, but I suppose they weren't there at that time. But anyway, that was just kind of interesting to me, the connection. First of all, just the connection to Detroit. Um, yeah because you think of them being bigger than life, but they were here in this community and their doctor, at least at some point in 1968, their doctor was my father. Yeah, this is, is you know, the, the way that I'm connected through this and we're all connected in Motown, this Motown history. Melvin dated my cousin when they were in high school and I found that ah, later Are you on. serious? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why didn't you tell me this when I did the show? Why is this now coming out? <laughs> you know, and so it's just the connection. I didn't know like how how connected we are and how, you know, like you said, Orlando, when you go and you're traveling the world and you're hearing a Motown song being played on another part of the darn world, it's, you know, it's just very uh, interesting the, the the machine that Barry Gordy created um, and, and, and the legacy of this, this company and the people that are part of it. It's great. Last question, because I know we got to wrap up. From each of your perspectives, I would love to hear from you on what uh, you think is, you know, would be uh, the enduring legacy of Motown. Joanne, we'll start with you. Oh, wow. Okay, no pressure. I think the enduring <laughs> legacy of Motown would have to be the music that they left us um, and just the, the way that these artists came out and they're just now 
urban, not even urban legends anymore. They're just legends and it's being told for generation and generation and generation and generation. I just, um, I, I think that's what it is for me. I love it. Alan? I would, I would agree with uh, everything Juwan says. And uh, in addition to that, uh, Motown left a template for success for other black or, or music entrepreneurs, period. Uh, but certainly these days, uh, when you hear uh, folks like uh, uh, Dr. Dre or uh, uh, Babyface in LA or J Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, talk about who were their models in terms of what they wanted to do in terms of, of uh, creating uh, a vehicle to launch their own success and the success of people that they discovered. They always point to Barry as the model for that. Uh, and so <clears throat> I gotta give, I have to give him credit from the business world of music, which uh, 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 can be just as ruthless as the performing side uh, in creating something that's sustainable. Uh, and and, and the, 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 mute, the label is still around today. I absolutely love it. Listen, if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Just a few shout outs. Alan, you got some shout outs? Oh, he got records. I, yes, I just, uh, I would have gotten my vinyl out, but I couldn't find it in time. But uh, when you talk about the temptations, you gotta have a little discography here. That's it. And, this is one of this is one of the this this is the temptations in their absolute prime, right here. Tempted temptations. Since I lost my baby, my baby, and this is the guys the way they looked in 1964. And if you want to have ever to have a live album of the temptations in their prime, temptations live recorded in Detroit, by the way, at the Rooster Tail. <laughs> So my grandmother gifted me this David Ruffin compilation record on vinyl. Uh, look at how sharp Ruffin was, man. Uh, you tell him nothing. You could tell him nothing. I want to be like Ruffin. I do. I want to be like Ruffin, man. Can we see pictures of you, Juwan? Two things I want. One, I want to see you in, in costume. And two, I want to hear you. Where can somebody listen to you? Oh, well. I have a website that you can go to, jawanmjackson.com. But you can also go to ain'tooproudmusical.com. There are videos. I have the soundtrack I can send you, Donna. He's on the soundtrack on iTunes, the whole, the album, the whole album. So it kind of gives you, if you have not seen the show, the soundtrack gives you a scope of what the show is audio wise. And I think it's, you know, brilliant. It garnered me my first Grammy nomination. So, um, <laughs> I like it. Somebody liked it. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you can check those out. 
Oh man, and you you don't want to know the cool thing about about this uh, about this interview that I think personifies you know these legends, especially the legends that are still alive, is that their affinity and connection to home, right? Juwan is a Tony Award nominee, Grammy nominee, but he still comes home. He still answers the phone when I call. Mary Wilson still would come home. Mar we we see Martha Reese comes to the. Uh, East Side Extravaganza every year and dances. At the Rooster Tail. At the Rooster Tail, right? Uh, there's video of me and Martha dancing, Juana. I have to send it to you. Listen, uh, she will, but she will ballroom you down. You probably left <laughs> right. I'm a ballroom partner. I, if I'd have had nobody, I'm like, come on, Martha, let's dance. And that's, <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> and so, you know, the way, the way that, um, and I don't know if this was taught or if this was just culture, the way that Motown loves on home it really makes every Detroiter, you know, feel good. So yeah. shout, shout out to you uh, guys for being guests on the show today. I want to shout out Yusuf Bunchy Shakur, who is a regular uh, guest on Authentically Detroit. Happy birthday, Yusuf. Uh, shout out to my friend, Janelle Gary, Diversity and Inclusion Chair for PRSA Detroit, who wrote a great column on their blog today. Check it out at prsadetroit.org. Also, this Friday, I'll be facilitating the Detroit Capacity Building Forum this Friday from 9 to 12 in partnership with Michigan Community Resources and COAC. You can go to coac.org to register for that today. And Donna, I want to shout you out for holding it down last week. I was sick. I was struggling with the horrible case of food poisoning and the show went on. One monkey don't stop no show. So Donna, you're amazing. Thank you, and I want to say thank you to Daniel Baxter, our guest last week, for the amazing shout-out and tribute he gave me at the end of last week's show. Donna, you got shout-outs? I do. Um, I want to shout-out um, Jody Raines, um, and who's the Vice President of Programs at the Earth Foundation, who um, has probably got the longest record of contributing to significant sums of money to ECN over the past 12 years. And actually, um, two years from now, we still have future funding. She has taken the position of Vice President for Programs at New Detroit Incorporated, where I sit on the Board of Directors. And so it's a career change for her. And it's very exciting when women my age uh, make new career decisions. Life goes on and we still keep on taking. So congratulations to you, Jody, um, And thank you for the contribution she has made to the entire Detroit community. And um, a little bit younger, but still along these lines, Leslie Graham Andrews is now the new director for, is it strategy or something like that? I have it up here. Um, the strategic initiatives for um, the Urban League, National Urban League in New York oh City. Oh my God, congrats, uh, Leslie Andrews. Doing it, doing it for themselves. I'm so proud of all of the women. Um, so, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Joanna Allen, do you guys have shout outs? Uh, just shout out to my family back home in Detroit, always holding me down, always lifting me up and sending their prayers. And to everybody who has ever supported, tweeted, Instagrammed, Facebook, and called me um, from things that they've seen from uh, newspaper articles to, to TV show spots. Thank y'all. I love y'all so much. Alan? Yeah, and I, I could go on and on, but I just got to give one special shout out. And that's to my wife, Corlene Rawls. Uh, yesterday was her last day at Motown Museum. She's a curator. Uh, so she managed the collection for Motown and she decided it was time to retire while we're still young and able to hang out and uh, travel the world. 
So shout out to Corlene. I love you. Wow, beautiful tribute. Thank y'all so much for listening. We want you to catch the wave.